0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight we are going to talk about lying and specifically how one might be able to determine whether or not someone is lying. And I'm not going to bury the lead. As far as I'm concerned, uh, the research does not show that there's anything out there that can truly 100% tell you whether or not someone is lying. Um, So we're going to talk about why people continue to persistently want to find a way to do that when it seems like there is no way to do it because humans are complicated and they vary from place to place and there is no specific way in which you can tell with 100% clarity whether or not someone is being truthful. So a paper by Martina Vikinova of the Paval Josef Safarik University in Slovakia will help ground us in the history of lie detection. One of the first known methods for lie detection was described in China around 1000 BC. A person suspected of lying would be required to fill their mouth with a handful of dry rice. After a while, they'd be asked to spit the rice out. If the rice remained dry, the suspect would be found guilty. This was based on the idea that fear and anxiety lead to decreased salivation and a dry mouth. But of course, this response can be attributed to anxiety based on simply being accused of a crime uh, or panic at, again, being accused of a crime. And so most prisoners almost certainly failed the test and uh, it really had no I, nothing to do with whether or not they were actually liars. Now, the first person we know to use pulse or heart rate was Aristratus, the Greek physician and physicist who lived between 300 and 250 B.C., For hundreds of years in Europe and elsewhere, liars were actually given the chance to prove their innocence in the trial, in a trial by ordeal, or what was called the judgments of God. Here, the collective idea was that God would save an innocent person or prevent them from being harmed and condemn or leave a liar to their fate. The ordeal could be used on either the accused or the accuser, depending on the circumstances. Sometimes it would be just the accused, sometimes it would be both. It really depended. And so, courts in the 11th century in what is now Slovakia generally used either the water or fire test. Either cold or hot water could be used for the task. In the hot water trial, a person would be made to hold their hand or retrieve an object from a cauldron of boiling water. And if they performed the task without being scalded or blistered, they were considered to be telling the truth. In the cold water trial, the person would be thrown into the water in a roped sack. If the person emerged within a short period of time, they were considered to be so wicked that not even water would accept them and thus they would be condemned as liars or as we uh, well know as witches those who drowned were conceivably thought to have been taken up by god and thus uh, you know absolved of their uh, whatever was going on with them, they were able to join God so they wouldn't have to deal with crazy people who threw them into water anymore. Um, uh, That one is particularly awful. Now, the hot water method was challenged in 1593 in the Netherlands. And so it was then actually uh, sort of scientifically examined by the university faculty and rejected. Though, uh, as we know, the cold water test carried into the 18th century, almost always to test whether women were witches or adulterers or things like that, because, of course. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The fire ordeal required either the carrying of a piece of hot metal for a certain distance or for the subject to walk across burning embers. If they were not wounded or the wounds healed quickly, they were thought to be truthful. Now, of course, we all know that you can definitely walk across burning embers if you know what you're doing. Uh, so that's an interesting one to me. Uh I mean, a whole uh, self-help guru uh, retreats are based on the idea of being able to walk across hot coals or hot embers without hurting oneself. Um, the, you know, carrying a piece of hot metal is a different story, but that one's really interesting to me. I wonder how many people uh, were able to do that with ease, <laughs> the burning embers. Sometimes a consecrated meal would be employed. A priest would give the accused a piece of dry bread and a piece of hard sheep's cheese. If they were able to swallow the food in one bite, they were exonerated. Those who choked uh, were considered guilty. <laughs> there, there, was no, um, there was no indication of whether or not people who were choking were helped at all. Uh, so again, this might have been a... Uh, if you choked, that you uh, presumably in their eyes uh, were condemned by God to go to hell. And so other than, as mentioned, the cold water trial, these methods uh, ceased by the 16th century, luckily. Uh, but that was quite the stretch from the 11th to the 16th century. So there was a lot of trial by ordeal for a long time and so yeah I'm not saying that we should go back to anything like that because that was all ridiculous and atrocious but I'm going to uh posit to you that what we do today is no better uh diagnostically than those sorts of uh trials and tribulations for people it's definitely a lot less painful for people uh but it can lead to people being wrongly convicted, missing out on opportunities and all sorts of things that are still damaging. And before we enter the modern world of lie-detecting machines, we still need to pass through the use of phrenology and graphology. In 1870, Franz Joseph Gall developed his theory that you could detect deception through recognition of emotions of the accused, which, you know, sounds pretty straightforward. He expanded upon this idea with the help of his pupil Spursheim. And again, while this sounds like it might've been going somewhere, the place it actually ended up, was in phrenology. Um, And so Gall decided that the brain would affect the shape of the skull and thus you could tell whether a person had a tendency to engage in criminal behavior based on the size and shape of their skull. And so uh, this led to a lot of uh, criminals having their heads shaved and Uh, examined by gall and uh, having a bunch of spurious data be put out there. This was the age of uh, calipers and trying to determine people's abilities based on their skull shape. And of course, it wasn't just limited to whether or not someone was a criminal. It was also used for uh, racial discriminatory uh, uses and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes with phrenology. Um, and obviously, anytime someone can look for a way to discriminate, that is something that humans are also really good about. Unfortunately, <laughs> extremely unfortunately, uh, we're really good about f- trying to find ways to uh, separate ourselves from others. Now, despite the obvious problems with phrenology, it actually had a good effect in one respect. And so it seems to have led uh, the uh, people who were actually thinking hard about this To the realization that some criminals were actually medical, medically incapable of perpetrating crimes on purpose and that brain defects could account for some people's criminality. So this actually was one of the uh, first times when, uh, people who were known to have obviously, obvious mental illnesses were able to be avoid jail. Uh, because it was determined that their actions could in fact be beyond their control because of their mental illness. And so um, that was actually something that really hadn't occurred to people. And so it reminded researchers also that the human body is affected by environmental factors as well. So, um, Sometime in the, uh, mid to late 1800s, I don't remember exactly when, but, uh, there was, of course, the famous case of Phineas Gage where his, uh, he had the pole go through his frontal lobe. And after that, he was a completely different person. And so, uh, this really helps at this time period for people to realize that there's a real connection between the brain and your personality and your ability to um, either refrain from committing crimes or have compulsions to commit crimes because of mental illness. And so that was one of the few good things that came out of that era. And so in 1875, J. H. Michon developed the idea of graphology. And so graphology was originally meant to detect forged signatures, which, you know, kind of makes sense. Uh, There's definitely ways in which one can detect a forged signature unless it's really good. Uh, But then it was expanded to to encompass the idea that some personality traits may be discerned through someone's writing. And so basically, it was pretty much like phrenology. If you looked at the person's writing, um, you've probably seen things about graphology before. You know, if you make loopy swirls when you write, it means something. And if you, you know, have very small uh, penmanship, it means something else and things like that. And so the popularity of graphology waned after the first world war. But, uh, as I noted, it's still around today, even in some pockets of the psychological testing world, which is wild. Um, <laughs> some of this, the fact that some of this is still going on is just baffling. Um, because it's, it's so not something that has anything to do with reality. Even Charles Darwin um took time to write about uh facial expressions and um perhaps how we might discern deception. And so in 1872 he wrote a book uh and he ref- he referenced the work of Guillaume Duchesne de Boulogne. Uh and so published in eight in 19 19- in 1862. Goodness. Uh and called the mechanism of human facial expression or human facial physi- physiognomy. Duchenne believed that universal truths about the soul could be discerned by looking at people's facial features and expressions. And he thought that basically there were universal expressions that are able to be discerned through, um, you know, careful study. And of course, because this was the, uh, 18th, in the 19th century, uh, people in these, uh, he used several of his own patients and he, you know, tried to say that, oh, you know, this person has, uh, has neurological damage, so he can't feel when I move his face around to take pictures of him. And, you know, this other person that I'm using, they're used to it. They, they've they gotten used to it. So, you know, not the best um, time. Uh, reading some of these experiments is always uh, hard because you just realize like, oh, uh, these people just had no respect for their patients as human beings rather than test subjects but um you know he published this very famous very uh provocative book that had all of these plates of photographs because he basically said the only way to capture things is through photography you can't do it through uh painting or sketching or anything like that and so he was really um pioneering in uh the photography of human faces and so um you know, you can definitely go and look at them, but it is, uh, very 19th century. Um, and so, yeah, the 19th century was like the, the time period where people were really obsessed with measurement. Um, 19th century is when we, uh, get the initiation of BMI, uh, which I was excited to see a headline. I haven't really read much more, but, uh, there's a headline that, uh, the, um, I don't know if it's the National Institute of Health or if it was, um, the American Medical Association. I think it was the American Medical Association is finally starting to realize that BMI is not as magical of a, uh, number as they think it is and that it has a lot of problems. And so that is exciting because BMI is utter utter pseudoscience and so yeah anyways getting back to the uh, detection of lying one of the things that Duchenne is uh, credited for is the uh, discovery so to speak that true smiles involve not just the mouth but also the eyes and so uh, apparently they're called Duchenne smiles Um, so you can tell whether or not someone is being fake with their smile if it doesn't involve their eyes. He also, um, was, he also found, um, at least one or two diseases. So there's something called Duchenne cerebral palsy, uh, that he was able to diagnose. And so, um, you know, he was definitely a legitimate doctor, but again, one always has to remember that this was a different time where people were treated differently. Um, But anyways, let us now actually turn to polygraphs as we also hear that AI is trying to give us new versions of this old tool. Um, I use the word tool very loosely here And so despite their long-standing use everywhere, from police stations to daytime TV, we've long known that the traditional lie detector is pseudoscientific bunk. And it's pretty clear that an AI version would also be bunk. And so the polygraph is in the same category as body language experts who will swear that they can tell you whether or not someone is lying by how they move or don't move, or how they talk or don't talk during interviews. Despite what the show Lie to Me tried to tell you, again, it is all pseudoscience. And that makes me kind of sad because I love Tim Roth, and I'm really sad that he was associated with promoting this ridiculous idea. But, you know, everybody needs a paycheck. And so that show is actually directly based on the controversial work of Paul Ekman. And he is the creator of the idea of microexpressions. So if you've ever seen that show, it's kind of based on the idea of microexpressions and he is basically the guru of body language experts everywhere. Um and so if you ever want to Get a really good debunking of body language. You can find some great, uh, YouTube videos on it. Uh, you'll also, of course, find a hundred people on YouTube claiming that they can do, uh, interpretation based on body language. But, um, yeah. And so getting back to the polygraph, uh, historian Ken Adler has written extensively about the history of the lie detector. Now, the basis of the lie detector or polygraph was first conceived of in Europe by psychologists who wanted to explore the connection between blood pressure, respiration, and pulse rate with emotional changes, tension, and even reaction to sharp noises. The first device was called Lombroso's glove and was created by the Italian criminologist, physician, and anthropologist Cesare Lombroso. The device recorded the person's blood pressure on a graph or chart. So, this was, you know, the very first crude version of a um, polygraph machine. In the 1910s, Hugo Munsterberg, a German American psychologist, along with his student, William Moulton Marston, decided to apply these ideas to the determination of truth among criminals. Marston is much more well known today for creating the character of Wonder Woman with her lasso of truth. So he was kind of obsessed with truth, both uh, in real life and in fiction. Um, Fun fact, he was also uh, polyamorous and had a very long-term polyamorous uh, relationship. So that's at least cool. Um, And again, Marston's work used only blood pressure as an indicator. And so his work was taken up then by John Augustus Larson, a police officer with a PhD in physiology from UC Berkeley who developed a cardiopneumopsychogram which recorded not only blood pressure but also pulse and breathing rates. A protege of Larson's added the galvanic skin response sensor in the 1930s. So basically, uh, the galvanic skin sensor Uh, records basically, um, the conductivity of your skin and the more you sweat, the more conductive your skin gets. So again, this is all trying to, uh, basically show much like with the rice in your mouth that when you are, uh, sweaty and uncomfortable and you have a, you know, a high pulse rate, that means you're lying. Except, of course, People say with a panic disorder who have been unjustly brought in to be interrogated, uh, might have the exact same physiological response. <laughs> and so, yeah, it is, it's, it's very non-scientific. And so in its inception as a police tool, though, it was actually touted as a humane alternative to the brutal interrogation techniques carried out in the 1920s and 30s. So, I mean, if it's between a lie detector test and getting uh, the snot beat out of you, I guess a lie detector test is definitely uh, worth the (laughs) exchange. But um, both, unfortunately, lead to the same kinds of outcomes, which is false confessions. Now, it soon spread to other areas and was used, for instance, by the State Department to try and flush out homosexuals during the Lavender Scare and, of course, inevitably moved into corporate America. By the middle of the 20th century, some 2 million polygraph exams were being administered each year. Adler noted that the polygraph appealed to the public's desire for, quote, a dispassionate search for truth conducted by impersonal rules. And so this was the era of the rise of large corporations and also of a striving to apply scientific rules and understanding into creating the ideal workers. This era saw the simultaneous rise of intelligence tests, standardization of managerial techniques, and other attempts to create a scientific-based workforce. Um, So, you know, from the 50s on, there's this real... Um, idea that science can create the perfect worker. And so those perfect workers have to have all of these abilities and be, you know, trustworthy and um, intelligent and all of these things. And so um, a lot of what turned out to be not great science was very much touted as revolutionary. And so this the problem with this is that this science wasn't revolutionary because humans are very complicated and they are not easily placed into uh, neat little boxes. And so with the polygraph, it often turned out that it would only work on someone who believed it could work. There were many ways that were developed to beat the test, such as biting one's tongue, stepping on attack, or thinking about one's worst fear. Whereas innocent people are often shown to be nervous and sweaty as they're being interrogated for crimes they didn't commit, long-time criminals were often smooth and able to beat the test. So those who promoted polygraphs lied. <laughs> I am not kidding. They, they, Absolutely, totally, just lied about the efficacy of their uh, lie detector, and um, I think that's a good place to take a break to do some show promos and some PSAs. And we, when we come back, we will talk about uh, first Leonard Kille.r And how he uh, basically straight up lied about how effective his machine was. <laughs> So do stay tuned. You are listening to evidence-based radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Okay, we are back. You are listening to evidence-based radio, and as I noted before the break, Leonard Keeler was a polygraph entrepreneur, and he used a marked deck of cards in order to convince people the machine could tell when they were lying about what card they were looking at. Keeler famously administered his polygraph to Bruno Hauptmann, who was arrested and convicted of kidnapping Charles Lindbergh's son, despite Hauptmann maintaining his innocence until his death in the electric chair. Now, the Lindbergh baby case is a doozy, uh, and there is good evidence to suggest that Hauptmann was indeed innocent and was basically a scapegoat, um, that... The Lindbergh baby case is one of those cases that's just like absolutely bananas, and um, it's it's one of those things that, like, at this point, no one's ever going to really know exactly what happened uh, unless someone finds a you know signed confession somewhere. But um, it's really uh, yeah, it's a whole nother thing. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Adler notes that some police examiners were able to achieve the same results as the polygraph by simply having the suspect put their hands on a photocopier, which would then produce a printout with LIAR, all in caps, exclamation point. It was the psychology that is at play, not the actual manner of the mechanism. So if you think that the lie detector is going to catch you out in lies, it does. If you think that a photocopier knows whether or not you're telling a lie and it says liar, and you are lying, you're going to confess. That is what is going on there. And of course, one of the things that I find extremely ironic is that while police are supposedly searching for the truth of a matter, they are regularly allowed to lie and deceive to reach their targeted goal, whether that is the actual truth of the matter or just a convenient scapegoat. So for instance, when police officers put a person's hands on a photocopier and tell them it's a lie detector, that's perfectly okay, they're allowed to do that. They're allowed to tell you that you have to take a polygraph test even though you are not. They're allowed to tell you that someone else has fingered you for the crime. They're allowed to tell you that they have your fingerprints on, uh, you know, a weapon or where you've never been before. They are allowed basically to lie to you about absolutely anything. And so basically, uh, apropos of talking about, uh, lie detectors and police officers, uh, I will once again reiterate what, uh, your friendly leftist ACLU lawyers will tell you, which is, uh, if you are ever engaged by the police, the first thing you always want to do is ask if you are being detained, and if not, if you're free to go. And if they say yes, then you go. And if they say no, you continue to query them until they actually arrest you. And if they do arrest you, do not say anything. Do not say anything beyond, am I free to go, Uh, before that happens. Simply say, I am waiting to talk to a lawyer because even if you are 100% innocent, that is no guarantee that you will be fairly treated by police. Um, And so you need to be really cautious. Um, And so just FYI, they can't compel you to uh, do a polygraph test and um a polygraph test cannot be used in court uh in Massachusetts i know um specifically and so yeah it's it's quite a wild thing to talk about police using lie detectors when they uh have the absolute ability to lie to you about pretty much anything okay so um <laughs> Let's move on, uh you know I was reading an article about this, and there was a story about a young man who took a lie detector to test lie detector test in New York because he knew he was innocent, and he failed the lie detector test supposedly, and so a detective uh this was in New York uh before they uh, disallowed uh, lie detector test results in courts, I believe, um, because apparently the detective said, oh, I've never, ever known anyone to be innocent when they failed a lie detector test, which is, of course, ridiculous. And so the young man was convicted and spent three years of an 11-year sentence in jail for a crime that he had not committed. And what is probable about why he failed the lie detector test is because his mother had died just like the day or two before from cancer. And so he was distraught. So of course, when someone is distraught, they are going to not do well on a lie detector test. And so these are the kinds of things that happen. And um, it's, it is just Very, very upsetting that innocent people have and continue to be incarcerated based on this kind of absolute junk science. And not only are uh, polygraphs still used to look for criminals, they're still used to screen employees by the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, the CIA, as well as more than three-fourths of all urban police and sheriff's departments. Now, this is actually despite the fact that private employers have been barred from using polygraphs on their employees since 1988, with some exceptions for security roles. Now, both the American Psychological Association and the National Academy of Sciences have condemned the use of the polygraph as a measure of truth-telling. But as noted at the beginning, a new era is upon us, with AI lie detectors, which promise to remove the bulky polygraph polygraph with a new system that could be deployed at places like border crossings and in private companies to determine truthfulness. Now, the new polygraph promises to use algorithmic learning to determine whether someone is lying through their verbal or facial expressions and mannerisms. So basically, a digital body language expert. Now, one such uh, idea was started as a project by Janet Rothwell when she was at the University of Leeds. She was motivated by, you know, she was well-motivated at the beginning. Um, She had learned about a woman who had been killed by a serial killer Uh, named the Yorkshire Ripper. And that person had killed at least 13 women and attempted to kill at least seven others. And he had been questioned by the police nine times before he was finally caught in the act. And so they could basically never prove that he had done anything during any of those nine uh, times that he was brought in as a suspect. And so Rothwell wondered if a device could be created to help police determine more quickly whether someone was guilty of a crime. I wondered, she recalled, could a computer flag some sort of incongruence in behavior to alert the police? She went on to grad school at Manchester Metropolitan University in the late 1990s, where she met Zuhair Bandar an Iraqi British lecturer working in the computer science department who'd been working on consumer interest. They'd give the customer a handheld device, said Bandar, and if they approve, they press one. If they don't like it, they press two. I thought, why do we need handheld devices if there are already expressions on their faces? Bandar asked Rothwell to stay on and get a PhD, while they developed software that could detect information based on facial expressions. Rothwell trained a neural network in the early 2000s to track blinking, blushing, and other facial movements using a data set of people answering the same set of questions, sometimes truthfully, sometimes not. The network then determined a theory of deception. In a 2006 study, the system now called silent talker, was given a chance to test its algorithm. It never achieved greater than 80% accuracy, which of course seems pretty good until you realize that this once again means the difference could mean the difference between someone being convicted of a crime or wrongfully accused of stealing from their employer or other scenarios in which 100% accuracy is necessary. Rothwell notes that the system broke down altogether if someone was wearing glasses because it relied on access to the full face in a certain, uh, with a certain amount of light on the face. Again, a neural network is only as good as the data sets on which it is trained. And that is going to come up again and again and again. Now, Bandar was keen to bring the software to the market, but Rothwell began to have second thoughts. "'I could see that the software, if it worked, could potentially be intrusive,' she said. "'I don't think that any system could ever be 100%, and if the system gets it wrong, the risk to relationships and life could be catastrophic.'" Uh, So for one thing, she had been asked to have um, Silent Talker analyze a video of a woman who was suspected of cheating on her husband. And she basically was like, if I get this wrong, then a relationship could be ruined for no good reason. And so uh, that that meant that she was shocked to find in 2003 when MMU released a statement that the new technology would make the polygraph obsolete. Now, not to be left behind, back here in the U.S., the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the National Science Foundation, uh, mostly with funding from the DOD and DHS most likely, have spent millions of dollars on researching al- algorithmic-based lie detection. They developed a kiosk called Avatar, or the Automated Virtual Agent for Truth Assessment in Real Time. At the University of Arizona. DHS also tried to help fund a company in Israel called We See You. Not creepy at all, but that was apparently a failure. Silent Talker and Avatar uh, made it further. I can't find anything about Silent Talker anymore, but Avatar is definitely uh, at least still has a web presence and is still out there uh looking like it's trying to drum up business. And so in 2012 though, the Silent Talker program was deployed to determine comprehension rather than guilt. It was used on 80 women in Tanzania who were taking an online course on HIV treatment and condom use. The program was able to determine with 80% accuracy which students would pass the quiz and which would not. The study led it to be included in the European Union's Eye Border Control Program, Unfortunately, there was basically immediate blowback uh, from various organizations and politicians with Privacy International condemning the project as, quote, part of a broader trend towards using opaque and often deficient automated systems to judge, assess, and classify people. Now, in 2020, Jim O'Shea, a former student of Bandar, had largely taken over the daily workings of the company Psychologists often say you should have some sort of model for how a system is working, O'Shea told Jake Biddle of the MIT Technology Review at the time. But we don't have a functioning model and we don't need one. We let the AI figure it out. This is, of course, a huge red flag that continues to be relevant in the development of all AI technologies. Without knowing how something like Silent Talker or Jack Or, ChatGPT truly works at the fundamental level, we can't anticipate the issues that can go wrong with it. And that's especially important in a field like this, where there is no consensus on what actually constitutes a tell that someone is lying and where there are so many variables at play and with such high stakes. A lot depends on whether you have a technological question or a psychological question. Ewout Meyer, a professor of psychology at Meistrich University in the Netherlands, said, An AI system may outperform people in detecting facial expressions, but even if that were the case, that still doesn't tell you whether you can infer from them if somebody is deceptive. Deception is a psychological construct." Meyer also pointed out the obvious issues with datasets and use in the real world. Such AI programs are almost always trained predominantly on white, male subjects. This is problematic in the extreme if a system is going to, for say, be deployed at a border crossing. When O'Shea was queried about this, he said he wasn't sure if there needed to be different settings for ethnic background or age but that there was a difference between men and women. Now, given what we know about how AI systems treat people with, for instance, darker skin tones, I think that that was a naive statement at best. Now, as I noted, uh, if you try and go to the Silent Talker website these days, it's actually abandoned. Uh, Their Twitter was last updated in 2018. Uh, so it seems that they've either become defunct or rebranded, and I couldn't figure out uh, that rebranding. Um, for instance, O'Shea still lists um, Silent Talker as his uh, website on LinkedIn. So I don't know if it's just they have a different website. I couldn't find it. Um so I don't know what happened to that project especially since they were so eager to go to market. Um it's interesting. But of course just if even if this one company ended up not making it that does not mean that the technology has been given up on. Uh DHS continues to fund research into AI detection screening. Another Israeli company uh Nemesisco sold AI voice analysis software that it touted as being used by police departments in New York and sheriffs in the Midwest to interview suspects, as well as by debt collection call centers to measure the emotions of debtors on phone calls. But the real issue with this sort of AI technology comes in the world of private companies. Private companies are basically black boxes. A Montana-based company called NeuroID, which is very much still in business and according to its website, uses AI analysis of mouse movements and keystrokes to supposedly discern whether a potential lender is a fraud risk, is still out there. According to the company, if you spend too much time filling out your household income and move your mouse around too much, then the system can flag you as potentially untrustworthy. I mean, it's just crazy. Now, uh, interestingly, when the company tested itself, it actually found a high degree of false positives. Surprise, surprise. Fewer than half of the applicants who received the lowest score turned out to be fraudulent and only 10% of those who received the next to last score turned out to be fraudulent. Even worse though, and I wasn't sure it could be worse, is a company called Converis, uh, which means with truth in uh, Latin. And so this company measures the dilation of a subject's pupils supposedly to measure cognitive load on the idea that it's more cognitively demanding to lie than to tell the truth. They actually admit that their company, uh, they allow companies to use the software, American-based companies, by the way, to use the software in countries like Panama and Guatemala for ways in which it would be illegal in the United States. So again, screening uh, their employees and things like that. Now again, they tout around 85% accuracy, uh, which is very much not good enough when people's lives and livelihoods are at stake. Now, of course, there is the big sort of elephant in the room, which is that I do have to admit, that humans are not great at this either. There is a big argument to say that humans are not better than machines, so why don't we let machines do it? But... I would argue that we can often detect the biases in humans better than we can in machines. We have this tendency to believe that machines are infallible. And so if they say something, we have a tendency to believe it. And remember, we don't know exactly how they come to their ultimate determinations. And of course, we don't know what data set necessarily they were trained on. And with humans, since we know humans aren't 100%, we require something more than just a human deciding whether or not someone is being truthful. We require evidence. And that is something that is important. Of course, as with polygraph tests, uh, there's a whole bunch of evidence that is still admissible in courts that also is pseudoscientific bunk. Um, But again, that's another show for another day. Um, all sorts of things. Um, I mean, I've talked about some of them before. Uh, bite mark analysis, uh, blood spatter analysis. I mean, technically, even fingerprints are not a hundred percent. DNA is not a hundred percent. Uh, scientific tests have shown that you can actually get DNA from other people on your hands and that can be then spread to places that they've never been. Um, yeah. So. Uh, basically all of everything is fraught and we just have to do the best we can, but we can't rely on simply having a machine that tells us what we think is true. And so, uh, you know, the companies would then come back and argue that, well, we'd never tell you, you should rely on the tech alone, but we all know that that is going on already and will continue to happen. And one of the most important factors to consider is that none of these companies' technologies have been independently reviewed and analyzed because, of course, they'll claim, oh, well, it's all proprietary software. And so this doesn't stop Converis, for instance, suggesting that their product is the quote unquote world's best lie detector, despite suggesting an 86 to 88% accuracy rate. The work at the University of Arizona turned into a company called Discern. Discern states on its website that all of our solutions for detecting deception are straightforward to deploy, user-friendly to operate, and proven reliably by rigorous science. Not only is this dystopian because it's using incomplete data sets on incomplete theories, it's all touted for its ability to replace human operators. So for instance, noting under the headline, cost savings, the discern company says, there is never a cost for interview recruitment, training, salary, healthcare, vacations, sick leave, or turnover if you use one of their kiosks instead of a human being. And just recently, a Massachusetts woman has sued CVS for using HireVue, an AI-assisted video interview software platform. The suit argues that the use of this tool violates the Massachusetts law against using lie detectors. According to The Globe, the Massachusetts law goes even further than federal law quote, forbidding all employers from using a polygraph or other device, mechanism, or instrument to assist in or enable the desec- detection of deception as a condition of employment. Higher view contends that their, quote, assessments are not and have never been designed to assess the truthfulness of a candidate's response. They contend that they use tools based on, quote, validated industrial organizational psychology. But they also say that their work allows a company to not have to rely on a CV, which could be inflated by an applicant. Sounds to me like they're trying to suss out lies on someone's employment uh, application. And so, yeah. I mean, ultimately, that is for a court to decide, though. So the long and the short of it to me is that AI is not ready for deployment yet, and that we should all be wary of any ways in which it touches our lives. So, for instance, you may have heard recently about two lawyers who are finding out the hard way that they shouldn't have outsourced their legal research to chat GPT, which ended up fabricating several cases in support of a claim they were making and who ended up being, and who may end up being sanctioned or worse for the offense. And of course, in the realm of lying, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's that case is particularly, um, you know, you can't believe this. It's, you know, the truth is is far stranger than fiction. Um, but anyways, uh, getting back to lying, we really cannot rely on machine learning to tell us whether or not someone is lying. And it is very frustrating when people are out there still telling you that body language can tell you whether or not someone is lying or this can tell you or that can tell you or that polygraphs are, you know, I've never had anyone fail a polygraph that wasn't guilty. That is completely ridiculous because for one thing, the idea of not Seeing someone as being innocent is so ingrained into the cognitive dissonant functions of a brain of someone who is a cop that even if someone protests their innocence, they're almost certainly not going to believe them. And so for them to be able to confidently say that the lie detector is never wrong is just pure fantasy. All right. So that is all the time we have for tonight. Um, Remember, never talk to the cops um, unless you absolutely have to, and then only to ask them if you're free to leave and, uh, and, or to tell them that you would like a lawyer. that is your lesson for this evening. Uh, you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I thank you. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widget by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash bird